Welcome to episode 864 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Perspective, brought to you by our supporters at Patreon, as well as the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I'm Sam Miller, along with Ben Lindbergh of 538. Hi, Ben. Hello. How are you? I'm okay, thanks. Excited to start a new week with a full slate of podcasts. Yeah. Uh, well, thank goodness Rich Hill gives us a uh, running start. <laughs> Rich Hill had his worst start of his recent return. Very wild. Lots of base runners. Lots of runs. Uh, If I can, I'll pull up the exact line, but it was ugly. And I am now dropping down to two years. I'm dropping my contract offer to two years. (laughs) Uh, I'm saying two years and 18 million. Uh So I'm under 20 million as well. Oh, wow. in, In guaranteed money that I'm willing to give him last off season there's a weird there's a weird time paradox here where i'm every start brings me further into the future and yet i'm still having this conversation <laughs> from the perspective of last off season yeah but that's irrelevant that's a costly start he should have accepted your previous retrospective offer he really cost himself he went four he went four and a third allowed nine hits three runs and three walks struck out six but you know i had to face 24 batters to strike out those six. Uh, and uh, it wasn't, uh, I think that I'm leaning toward, like he won't have to do too much to get more money put on the table. But, you know, that's 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 two bad ones. He's had yeah. two bad ones. Just couldn't repeat that release point, probably, perhaps. I guess, yeah. Yeah. Well, in other news, the two teams that we talked about on Friday, the two teams that were at the time winless, are undefeated since our Friday episode. The Braves and the Twins both swept this weekend. I would say that as sweeps go, they were not convincing sweeps. The Twins swept the Angels and the Braves swept the Marlins. So not the best competition and the margins of victory were not wide. They were about as narrow as they could have been really. Of the six games, there were three one-run victories, two two-run victories, and one three-run victory. So they didn't exactly blow them away, but still an incredible reversal in fortune for those two teams that started the season 0-9. So just so I'm clear on the math here, they're now 3-9? That's right. (laughs) Okay, because you sounded more excited than that. (laughs) Well, I mean, one win. They were desperate for one when we last spoke, and now they're just rolling in wins. They're 3-9, right? (laughs) They are still 3-9. Okay. I believe they're still both in last place. Okay. <laughs> but but still a a great improvement in their fortunes. I won't call it a total reversal, but but an improvement. All right. And another thing, another running effectively wild theme of last season, we got our first John Lester throw of the season. This was not a pickoff attempt, but a throw he was forced to make by a bunt by the Rockies Brandon Barnes and it was, uh, I guess, a, a typically Lester result. He did get the out, but it took every took every inch of Anthony Rizzo to get it and every second that he possibly could have used to get the out. He bounced it 
a couple times over the baseline and into foul territory. And Rizzo stretched out and managed to record the out just barely. And so clearly his his problems with throwing the first are still around. And it really reinforces for me how fascinating a story this is for for multiple reasons that we've talked about before. I mean, one, just your basic yips related fascination is I mean, it's it's not unprecedented, but it it is always incredible when someone has this problem, when someone whose job is to throw a baseball and who is among the best in the world at throwing a baseball is not even close to the best in the world, throwing it to a different base, throwing it at a different angle or at a different speed. I mean, when John Lester is throwing from the mound, he is one of the, I don't know, 30 best people in the world. And when he is throwing to first base, he is worse than you and I are, basically. So it's a it's an incredible disparity. And he's not he's not, by the way, he's not just worse than you or I are. He is the rare instance of an athlete who looks like an impression of a bad sports act. Which yeah. is very rare. I mean there are like obviously there are people who are better or worse at every aspect of every sport. And sometimes there are people who are genuinely horrible. Like there are free throw shooters in the NBA who are genuinely bad free throw shooters who shoot 40 some percent, right? Mm-hmm. But if you and I were told for like our improv group, imitate a bad free throw shooter, yeah. we, we would look artificial and unnatural and we would, you know, the ball would bounce off the top of the backboard and we wouldn't hold it right. We would do everything wrong. We would look like, you know, the Ministry of Funny Walks for free throw shooting. And John Lester has managed to throw like that impression of a bad thrower yeah. when he has to throw. Like it is completely unnatural. It's completely like sort of convoluted mm-hmm. in how he even attempts it. And I think even more incredible than that is that it doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't really matter. Two for four on stolen bases this year. Yeah, it doesn't really matter that he cannot yeah. complete this basic act of baseball. Yeah. And I don't know whether Brandon Barnes was trying to exploit this weakness. It was, I mean, against any other pitcher, it would not have been a good bunt. It was basically right back to the pitcher. But in this case, that makes it an excellent bunt. <laughs> any any bunt back to Lester is a high percentage play, it seems. And yet we still think of John Lester as a really good pitcher. It's not even like that this very obvious and basic weakness hasn't you know kicked him out of the league it's not like we're talking about you know well he's managed to hang on it's that he is still an elite starting pitcher it really hasn't hurt his reputation at all it it maybe it hurt his performance a little bit but not really I mean last season was essentially as good as any of his previous seasons even though he gave up a a ton of stolen bases right the most stolen bases ever allowed in a season by a left-handed pitcher it still just didn't matter that much. It's like this very obvious weakness that you'd think teams could and would exploit. And they have exploited it to some extent, but you'd think not as much as they could have. And the degree to which they have exploited it just almost hasn't affected him. I mean, theoretically, he would have been even better last season if guys hadn't been able to run on him so much, but it didn't affect him. I mean, he was still very much a man that Cubs fans wanted to see on the mound. It's incredible. Yeah, it's the most it is the most interesting part of baseball in this era. 
All right. Well, what less interesting part of baseball would you like to discuss? I want to do our annual why, how baseball is different this season. (laughs) Okay. Otherwise known as things that appear to be trends, but mostly are not. Yes, that's exactly right. <laughs> okay. So, uh, so I'm going to describe, for people who have joined us in the last 363-ish days, I'm going to describe some statistical phenomena um, league-wide this year that show a notable, one would say convincing, deviation from recent years. And then we're going to talk about whether they're real, whether they're early, uh, specific to the early season, or whether they are flukes and that they will reverse. And if you're playing along at home, so, uh, just an important thing to point out if you're playing along at home. Sometimes you've got to, these are, these are basically shifts that happened since last year. They are often shifts that, uh, shifts from, century, you know, from a century of, of baseball uh, normalcy, uh, but the shift happened in the last year. So if the answer that you're thinking of is something that can be tied to the change in the game over the last 30 years. Uh, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a change in the game since six months ago, mm-hmm. in most cases, and uh, why that might be. All right, so are you ready? Yes. So this, is, in fact, the first one is a good example of what, I, of, of what I was just talking about. All right, sacrifice bunts, Ben. Yeah. Not just an all-time low. Uh-huh. Uh, and I, in fact, I think last year we had sacrifice bunts on here yep. uh, as as one of these because every year we set a new all time low. That's not notable. Mm-hmm. People bunt less than they used to. Uh, managers call for fewer bunts than they used to. You used to have about a half a bunt, a half a sacrifice per game, and that's been going steadily, very slowly down on the order of like you know maybe one fiftieth of a bunt per game every five or ten years mm-hmm. to the point that. Um, last, uh, four years ago, we cracked the, the point two, the, you know, we got under 0.3 bunts per game for the first time in, uh, in 2013, there were 0.28 bunts sacrifices per game in 2014. There were 0.28 sacrifices per game in 2015. There were 0.25 sacrifices per game, which is a giant drop relatively speaking from one year to, to the next. Three hundredths of a bunt per game is a big drop. This year, Ben, 0.15 sacrifice bunts per game. It is wow. from 0.25 to 0.15. Huh. That that would probably be the, the biggest single season jump ever, I suppose. Oh, by, by, by a lot. Yeah, by yeah. a lot. I yeah. mean, uh, a drop of three hundredths. Uh, let's see. I, I'm not sure I can find. I found a drop of four hundredths from 0.41 to 0.37 in 1982, in 1983. Uh-huh. And, and so that might be, and then you have the DH drop. The, the first year of the DH, of course, it dropped by 0.7. So this is actually a bigger drop than taking pitchers out of the lineup in half the league. <laughs> wow. By the way, by percentages, it's even bigger, because back then, that was one-seventh of bunts that got eliminated. We have... 40% Ben of bunts have disappeared <laughs> overnight. 40% of bunts huh. have disappeared since last September. And I can't say I miss them. Can't say baseball <laughs> is more boring without them. Every, I, uh, every five minutes I'm tweeting, you know, wh- where's the bunt? Where are all the bunts? There should be a red zone. Why am I zone, even watching? Right. There should be a red zone network for bunt situations. Yeah. 
Yeah, I wrote an article about this in part this winter about the decline in certain tactics that seem uh, counterproductive. And, you know, it was sacrifice bunts and intentional walks and pitch outs. And all these things have become less common and it really hasn't affected the product at all, if anything. I mean, there are ways in which maybe you could argue that baseball has become more boring with all the pitching changes and all the strikeouts and all that. We've talked about that on the show many times, but in this sense, in in losing intentional walks and sacrifice bunts and pitch outs, it doesn't seem like baseball is losing any entertainment value. If anything, it's becoming better because it's doing away with these things as, as long as they exist to some extent. I think the fact that they are options that some people pursue does make baseball a richer tapestry of a sport, I think. There's just more variety in what you see on the field. But these are among the most boring things you can see on the field, unless you are sacrifice bunting to John Lester, which isn't really a sacrifice at all. So there are a few possible responses when we talk about these early season trends. It could be, you know, small sample, and I think it will end up going the other way, or small sample, and I think it's about right, or small sample, and I, I think it is a change in the right direction, but probably a little bit overblown. And this seems like the last sort of reaction is appropriate, that this is the way that sacrifice bunts have been trending for years now. And it makes all the sense in the world that they would continue to, but it does seem like a giant jump for one season. I don't know if we could account for this. It's not as if, you know, some really prolific bunt calling manager left the game last year and was replaced by someone who never bunts or something, or I don't know, maybe that happened. I don't think, I don't think that happened. There, there are new managers and new managers maybe tend to be more anti-bunt than old managers in general, but it still seems like a, a difference you couldn't really account for just with changes in personnel. Yeah. Let me give you a, uh, uh, let me just give you a little bit of evidence. I think that suggests that this is real, especially real. And you mentioned it. You mentioned that intentional walks is another one of this category of moves that you lumped together uh, in your argument that, what did you say, sabermetrics are killing bad strategy? Yeah, so, or, yeah, certain certain strategies. I think you said bad strategy. I think you had a headline <laughs> that was fairly... I'm, yeah, I may have. I may uh, also not have written it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so intentional walks are also down significantly. Uh, also, you know, record low, but, um, you know, it's gone from 0.2 intentional walks per game last year, which was a record, to 0.17 this year. So we're talking about a drop of 15% year-over-year in intentional walks. And I would just think that it's, it doesn't quite, as I've written about, intentional walks don't really correspond necessarily to any philosophy perfectly, but you would sort of, you lump them together I kind of lump them together. To me, what we're talking about, if this is real, is essentially these are the same thing. This is front offices finding a way to have their philosophy reflected in the dugout, whether that is hiring the manager that they want to to have tactics that they approve of, whether it is having liaisons and bench coaches that are more of a voice of the front office in the dugout, or whether it's sort of doing the Clint Hurdle thing and basically calling the manager in, 
in the offseason and saying this is the way that you keep your job. The other way is the way that you don't keep your job. Now get to it. One way or another, uh, if this is real, what we are seeing is that this offseason, through the, a combination of these three factors, front offices are getting their way on tactics more often than that, not, more often than not. Now, if this turns out to be small sample fluke and that it completely goes back to normal, then it would be the opposite. It would be conclusion that that didn't happen this offseason. Uh, or I guess that maybe you could also plausibly argue that, in fact, uh, front offices are comfortable with the amount of sacrifice bunts and intentional walks that we had last year and that they don't want to change it. My guess is that they do, uh, and my guess is that this is fairly real. I wouldn't expect it. I also wouldn't expect it to be a 40% drop in bunts at the end of the year, but I will be surprised if – I guess there's also the possibility maybe – I don't think this would be enough to – I'll finish that thought, by the way. But I don't think there's enough to move the needle that much, but it's also possible that since starting pitchers don't pitch as deep into games early in the season, they're getting fewer at-bats, and therefore there are fewer sacrifices. Yeah, that's possible, right? We are comparing last year's full season rates to this year's first half of April rates, so it's not quite apples to apples. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, I would be surprised if the number starts with a two at the end of this year. Uh-huh. I think we're going to crack the teens, which would be significant. It would be the if if that is true, if that holds up, it will be the biggest drop year over year in this stat uh, in absolute value since the DH left and by percentage value in history. Yeah. I I mean, I was not the only one who's written about this. Uh, Other people wrote about it this winter. I think Tyler Kettner might have had something about it in his season preview piece recently. And it's been noticed, and no one really has pushed back. It doesn't seem like anyone is really lamenting the loss of these things. And to be clear, we're not recommending that people eradicate them completely. There is still a a statistically sound place for these tactics in games. It's just much rarer than it was at one time, and maybe then it still is. But, I mean, a lot of people have pointed it out, and there hasn't really been any backlash. No one is is starting a change.org petition to save the sacrifice bunt, as far as I know. No one really misses it. Even, you know, old school people or people who grew up when it was more common and got attached to that brand of baseball, no one really seems to miss the strategy. And so maybe there is kind of a Gladwellian tipping point where everyone, you know, it, it sinks to a level where everyone just realizes, okay, well, it's it's fine. No one no one objects if I no longer do this. No one asks me an uncomfortable question in a press conference about why I didn't sacrifice bunt there. No one expects me to. So I don't have to do this to keep up appearances and, you know, players come up and they see that veterans aren't doing it. And so they don't feel pressured to do it. And maybe all of that sort of stuff could snowball and just come together in a single season where there's a a gigantic jump. But I don't know. I would expect would expect it wouldn't be as big, but I wouldn't be surprised if this does turn out to be the biggest drop ever. That is a really good point that there that was, I think, always seen you know a decade or 15 years ago by bp writers to that there was sort of a performative aspect to a lot of these small ball in particular old school strategies that maybe the manager genuinely wanted to call that bunt or bring in his closer but maybe he was just very subconsciously 
uh, aware of which one was more likely to get him called onto the carpet yeah. by the media or whoever after the game. And so, yeah, that's a uh, that is interesting. This um, this way that getting rid of these stats feeds itself uh, and makes it a safer place for a manager to to not do these moves. And you have to figure. I mean, I don't know. That to some degree, managers want to call for things like they want to justify their place in the dugout by making moves. And a sacrifice is one of the few things that they can call. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, you have to figure that to some degree also a lot of them feel like we do, which is a little bit of a disappointment that they have to give away an out and that they would rather, you know, shoot for the moon and uh, and let the guy swing away. And they, I, I would imagine that a lot of managers have called for a lot of bunts and always felt a little bit of uh, emptiness in their hearts while doing it. Uh-huh. Uh, just because it feels so so cautious, it feels so safe and cautious. Yeah, who wants to live that way? Not all managers are safe and cautious types. I'm going to give you one last little bit here because I looked it up while you were talking, and it's especially uh, shocking. Okay. My my early season caveat that maybe it's the weather or maybe it's the pitchers not going as deep, you know. So I looked at in teams' first ten games, going back to 2010, uh, how many sacrifice bunts are there? in teams' first 10 games, and the drop is is probably even bigger now if you look at just the first 10 games. In 2011, there were 112 in, the, in teams' first 10 games. This year, there are 49. Huh. Wow. Uh, and uh, the, the lowest year before this was 73, so a drop of, you know, about 40%. Okay. So there you go. Yep. All right. Next one, Ben. Yeah. Grounded into double play. <laughs> okay. All right. So uh, there are 0.72 ground ball double plays per game this year. Uh-huh. Last year there were 0.77, and on base percentage is pretty comparable. Uh, it's a it's a little down this year, but very very by by very little. And probably if you looked at just April, you would find that on base percentage is actually up slightly this year because that is one of those things that goes up as the year goes on. Uh, so I don't think that. Fewer runners on first is a factor here. But uh, ground ball double plays is the lowest that I can find since 1991. Uh-huh. And, uh, and the lowest in recent history, uh, not by a ton. There are years, not by a lot, in fact. There are some years where it goes up and some years where it goes down. Generally speaking, though, over the last six, seven years, you see about 0.76 ground ball double plays per game. Um, and this year it's 0.72. And this one is somewhat relevant because I forget who it was, but I saw somebody blaming the shift for there being fewer double plays. Anyway, it doesn't matter. (laughs) Somebody was talking about the shift, Ben. All right. Citation needed. Yeah, I forget. It's a citation needed, yes. I forget who said it, but I saw somebody talking about the shift. Maybe I just heard an announcer talking about it, but... It is true that it, it, Ben. Why do I need to cite anybody? We had this experience. We 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 had to try to figure out how to put on a defensive shift while also having a plausible plan in case of a double play. Yeah. And it's not um, you know it's not always easy depending on where you put your middle infielders to have a guy who's there to take the throw, especially you know depending on which guy it's hit to. And so it does seem plausible to me that the shift would be costing teams double play opportunities in the field. And so I guess what I'm, I'm bringing this up to see if it seems plausible to you and also whether you've written that 
or have read anything about that? I don't think I've written or read that. I did notice when I checked a day or two ago that shift shifting rate was up very much yet again. I guess that's a another trend we could talk about. I can get those numbers. But um, that doesn't make as much sense to me. I, what about Utley rule ramifications? Oh, well, you would think that would raise the level of double plays. Yeah, I guess that's what about true. No, what about no neighborhood play uh, exemption anymore? Right, yeah, that would decrease it theoretically. It would, although it's not like we've you and I have both watched enough baseball to know that there's not an outbreak of neighborhood plays being called against defenders. Like, I haven't seen it yeah. yet. I will also point out that the shift uh, last year was the huge spike in shifts league-wide, and ground ball double plays went up from the year before and also from the previous five years before. Uh-huh. So if there was a real disadvantage to the defense in turning double plays with the shift, it did not in any way show up last year. And so it would be a little bit of a stretch to claim that it has this year based on a semi-formed hypothesis. Yeah, it looks like shifts are actually thus far, and this is a trend we could talk about, but it looks like shifts are actually on pace for their largest percentage increase, if not ever, at least for a, for a couple years. Yeah, at least since 2014. Last year, it went from 13,300 to 17,700, which isn't actually that big a jump. It, it seemed like it might be slowing down, like maybe everyone who was going to shift had decided to shift already. But the numbers at least still suggested that people hadn't reached the optimal shift rate. And it looks like this year, uh, so last year was 17,700, and right now teams are on pace for 30,300, which is a uh, a really, yeah, I mean, it's almost, almost doubled from a pretty high level. Real increase in broadcaster backlash to the shift too. I'm hearing uh-huh. a lot more. I'm hearing a lot more broadcasters talking about how it it's being overused. Like they, I think that there's a tendency to. Well, I think this is maybe the biggest misunderstanding among broadcasters. They'll say uh, to just throw a random example out there. Let's say that Joe Panic was being shifted, which I don't think he is, but let's say he was. And then the broadcasters go, well, see, now this is where I think it's gotten out of hand. I mean, Joe Panic, he's not a dead pole hitter. I'll see him. You, he's got power to the left center field gap. You see him, you saw him yesterday hit a double over the left field, you know, over the, into the left center field gap. Well, that's a, there's a difference between fly balls the other way and ground balls the other way. <laughs> and they're not shifting the outfield, most likely. They're shifting the, def- the infield defense. Uh, and I, I think that that is still a misunderstanding with broadcasters. They don't know the difference between a ground ball the other way and a fly ball the other way. And uh-huh. the hitters have uh, defined tendencies that are different on the ground than they are in the field. So I'm hearing that, and I'm also hearing the, well, uh, you know, a good hitter can adjust. Uh, and partly that is bemoaning that more good hitters aren't adjusting, and partly it is uh, critical of the shift as a strategy, like as though the like I think there's a <laughs> right. feeling that the league is simply going to adjust that this is a temporary bump in shifts because the league as a hive mind collective offensive whole is going to figure out that all you have to do is go the other way 
And uh, maybe I think a lot of people feel that way. I think that you probably used to feel that way, mm-hmm. right? A little bit. Yeah. And then you, uh, you and Chris in particular, Mosh wrote a lot about guys trying and how much the defense adjusts back and all that. And you more or less feel like for most hitters, adjusting is somewhere between difficult, impossible, and not all that productive, even if you can do it yeah. successfully. It's definitely taking longer than I expected. At the same time, Tommy Lyons, our mutual friend and the stoppers, former first base coach and, and still a player in the Pecos League this year, he texted me the other day to ask whether I thought the shift would be as effective if it had been implemented earlier at some point in baseball's history, like if people had started shifting in, I don't know, you know, the seventies or the eighties or something, would people still be shifting? And on that kind of timeline, it still seems improbable (laughs) that uh, shifts would be as effective as teams at least believe them to be now. It's just taking longer than I thought. By the way, Joe Panic has been shifted according to BIS in 7% of his plate appearances this year. All right. Yeah. Uh, another, by the way, another possible explanation for the double drop in double plays is that uh, strikeouts have spiked. Uh-huh. They go they go up a little every year. I don't think they've gone up at least a little every year since 2005. Uh-huh. And yeah, last year uh, was pretty flat, though. Last year was the smallest increase. It went from 7.70 to 7.71. Uh-huh. Uh, although uh, that is slightly undersold by fact that there were slightly fewer plate appearances per game as well mm-hmm. but yeah last year was basically flat uh but the you know it did manage to keep that trend line going up this year it's up by a half a strikeout per game wow it's gone from seven so it went seven i'll just read the last uh you know i'll read this decade 706 710 750 Huh. We are now in a world where 8.21 strikeouts per nine is average. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, that shouldn't shouldn't be mind-boggling, but it still is. Uh, and uh, so to put that in perspective, uh, Bob Gibson, one year, Bob Gibson struck out that many batters per nine. Uh-huh. One year. So I think that we went over this last year, too, I, th- I think. Well, partly it's an April. I think it's uh, it's an April thing, right? Because for one thing, hitters are at a disadvantage. For another, isn't velo higher in April? No, it's lower. It's lower. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. Hmm. Okay. So then that wouldn't be a factor. Uh, more innings being thrown by relievers in April, uh, and presumably more pitchers healthy in April. Yeah. Because uh, they've had the whole off season to get well. I know that there's the Tommy John spike yeah. in the spring, mm-hmm. but those guys aren't there in August either. And so it would just make sense that you would have more healthy pitchers in April, I would think. Yeah. Although maybe you have dead arm guys in April too. Uh, I think we talked about this last year and it regressed. I think I might be wrong, uh, but this is a big, big, big spike. Do you think that this is going to, at the end of it, are we going to look back and see this is a significant year? Well, I think we've talked about how there has historically been a tendency for strikeouts to just keep climbing unless someone counteracts it, unless someone changes a rule and suppresses them. So there hasn't been a, a rule that I think would suppress them as, unless the, uh, you know, I don't know whether the uh, strike zone is any different this year. Obviously, the growing strike zone has been 
a big part of the increase in strikeouts over the last several years. But but yeah, I mean, I don't see any reason why the apparent pause last year would have been any more real or lasting than the so-called global warming pause. So I would expect the climb to continue. I don't know why this year would be any bigger than a jump in you know a previous year, but it wouldn't shock me. I'm going to play index real quick and see how April normally compares, just to confirm that I'm remembering any of this right. So I'm going back to 2000. I'm looking at total spanning season. I'm doing MLB teams together, and I'm choosing split type by months, and I'm doing strikeouts per nine. Uh, It actually looks like normally the rate goes up. In fact, the highest month is September. Second highest month is August. Then the third highest is April, March. The fourth highest is July, fifth highest is June, sixth highest is May. So strangely, this is sort of odd. I don't, I don't know if we've ever noticed this, but it is a perfect straight line up from May to September, uh-huh. with the lowest strikeout month being May and the highest being September. And every month that you go, it goes higher, except randomly April is, is in the middle. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's going back since 2000. So, so that is to say that there is something funny about April, uh, which makes you know makes sense. Hitters haven't maybe it's just as simple as hitters don't have their timing yet. Hitters haven't seen really truly live pitching yet, and so maybe you get uh, an April bump, uh, but that April is not usually the highest. And in fact, you know more or less roughly speaking, April is about what you should expect the season to be. So if there is the April effect that I described that worked exactly how I described it, then you would expect it to be the most notable in the first dozen games or so. Uh-huh. And so it is still possible that this is a early April effect. It's also possible that there is no April effect and that we are about to see it go really crazy. I mean, I think that we would agree. Like, we expect strikeouts to go up. Everybody expects the strikeout trend to to go in that direction. It's simple incentives for both the offense and the pitching defense. But it, if it jumps a half a strikeout <laughs> at this point, I think that you are going to have, I mean, it, like it becomes obligatory for every single person you read to write about what the trend means to them and their family. <laughs> yeah. And so get ready, perhaps, for the year of the strikeout think piece. It might be, like we had <laughs> one Even a more so years than ago. the last few years have been. Right, exactly. We had one a couple years ago. I think this year might be the real year. Like they, Sabre might actually have to have to introduce a new category for its annual award. <laughs> Contemporary analysis, history, and strikeout era think piece. <laughs> All right. All right. I've got a few more, but they group together nicely, and they're actually sort of quite a bit different. Okay. And so I'm going to wait until tomorrow. Oh, all right. So save your banter. We'll banter tomorrow, and then we'll do the second half of this, which is a little bit of a different one. And uh, and, and that'll be that'll be fun. Sounds good. Okay, so that is it for today. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. Today's five patrons who have taken that plunge, Tom Elmer, Brennan Jordan, Lane Maddox, Andy Young, and Kevin Seal. Thank you. You can also buy our book, The Only Rule Is It Has to Work, which comes out May 3rd. 
into the story of how Sam and I took over the baseball operations department of the Sonoma Stompers, an independent league baseball team, last summer and tried to run the team as we had always thought a team should be run. Our Publishers Weekly review came out today, and Publishers Weekly calls it a vivid, joyful exploration of recruiting and running a team by numbers and instinct. Their words, not mine. You can pre-order it now in various formats at Amazon and Barnes and Noble and your local bookstores. And you really only got a couple weeks to do that. Beyond that point, you won't be able to pre-order. You will only be able to order. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. And you can rate and review and subscribe to the show on iTunes. You can get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription to the Play Index at baseballreference.com. Use the coupon code BP when you sign up. You can email us at podcast at baseballperspectus.com or contact us by messaging us through Patreon. Have a nice rest of your day. We will be back tomorrow. And it's too